faculty of the Center for Culture, Brain, and Development, and he's the co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center. An award-winning educator, he is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and recipient of several honorary fellowships. Dr. Siegel offers online learning and in-person lectures, such as what he's offering today, that focus on how the development of mindset in individuals, families, and communities can be enhanced by, an ex- by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. His psychotherapy practice includes children, adolescents, adults, couples, and families. He serves as the medical director of the Lifespan Learning Institute and on the advisory board of the Blue School in New York City, which has built its curriculum around Dr. Siegel's mindset approach. He's a prolific author. Um, Many of his publications and uh, CDs um, are available for sale in our bookstore. I encourage you to check those out. Um, Dr. Siegel's unique ability to make complicated scientific concepts exciting has led him to be invited to address diverse local, national, and international groups of mental health professionals, neuroscientists, corporate leaders, educators, parents, public administrators, healthcare providers, policymakers, mediators, judges, clergy. I think the list goes on. He, he has lectured for the King of Thailand, Pope John Paul II, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Google University, London's Royal Society of Arts, TEDx, and Spirit Rock's crowd of January 25th, 2014. We are very excited that you're here, Dan. We're looking forward to the day and really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Okay. Hello. Good morning. Does this work okay? Great. I think this allows me to move. Yeah. Well, it's an honor to be here with all of you today. Um, uh, I'm Dan Siegel, and it's really a pleasure to be able to spend the whole day. Let me just make sure the technology works. Is the sound okay in the back? Yeah. Okay. Great. Wonderful. Um, So we're going to be spending the day today talking about um, the adolescent period of life uh, and talking about this uh, exciting possibility that we can examine adolescence from a different kind of framework than what we've been doing in our culture. Uh, And so we have the luxury today of spending the whole day doing that. Um, sometimes people ask me to do it in two minutes um, and try to explain what, what's going on. Uh, so this is exciting to actually be able to really take time to, to talk to you about all this. 
Let me just check out with you how many of you in the room are now in the age period between 12 and 24. Raise your hand. Fantastic. Great, great. So we have people who are in their adolescence. That's wonderful. How many of you ever once were adolescents? <clears throat> Raise your hand. Great. And anyone who's less than 12? Do we have some younger people? Uh, I thought I saw someone at the front door, but okay, maybe they went out running around. Um, so we're going to be talking about this period of time, uh, and we're going to be doing it from uh, a lens that is uh, different from maybe what you've heard before, but it's um, a field I work in called interpersonal neurobiology, which is a fancy word for just saying, what if you took all the different disciplines of science and combined them into one framework? And so that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years with some colleagues um, to say, is there one way of looking at, um, you know, the old Indian fable of the blind man and the elephant? So this is to say there's a whole elephant and different scientific disciplines will look at different aspects of the elephant, but we're interested in the whole thing. So some people may have studied, you know, the toe, some may have studied the shin, some may have studied the shoulder, the head, the, the um, ears, the trunk, all the different aspects of an elephant. We believe very deeply there's a whole reality, and whether you are like here in Spirit Rock studying mindfulness practice, or studying psychotherapy, or studying just attachment relationships, um, we believe very deeply there's a way of um, putting all those things together. So because we have the luxury of time today, I'm going to walk you through things and we'll be also doing some practices. Uh, but let me find out a little bit about you as we get going. How many of you are here as um, just citizens on the planet wanting to know more about yourself as an adolescent or as a parent? You're here for your own uh, learning. Just raise your hand really high so we can see. So that looks like about maybe the majority. That's great. And how many of you are here, of course we're all here for that reason, but for here for professional reasons. You're a teacher or a therapist or something like that, so you do that too. So that's another majority. Okay, <laughs> that's great. And how many of you are here by mistake? You thought this was some other talk. <laughs> um, okay, and how many of you are here primarily as a meditation practitioner where you really want to expand your understanding of, of uh, that practice? Okay, so we'll, we'll be talking about that too. And anyone here for any other reasons that I should know about? So I'll try to weave it into what we do. Okay, that's wonderful. Um, now, in, in looking at this interpersonal neurobiology view, we ask a very simple question which uh, the word simple it can be um, misleading because it doesn't mean it's easy. But the simple question is, what is the mind? What is the mind? So if you're in your adolescence now and you ask yourself that question, what is my mind? Uh, you may have noticed that your experience of feelings and thoughts, your ways of behaving, those are the simplest way of defining or at least describing what the mind is about, is how you feel, what you do with your feelings, how you think, how you pay attention, things like that, how you behave, that something changed at some point when you were a kid and when you became an adolescent, there was a difference. And let me just ask you, the adolescents in the room, we're in the adolescence right now, do you remember a moment when you said, wow, I'm no longer a kid, now I'm a teenager or now I'm an adolescent? Anyone remember that? Some people do. Um, 
you know, I've been having these Jeffersonian dinners where I have uh, people gather together for a, uh, a dinner, and we have one conversation, and that's a question I ask. Do you remember a time? And about half people do. They remember something happened, and in retrospect, they say, wow, I'm no longer a kid. Um, and for me, I remember a time when I started thinking differently, and I said, whoa, like, I started realizing that in my, my own experience, you know, time goes by and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And I never used to think like that. Uh, and of course, when you take that to the extreme, you realize one day you're not going to be alive. And that thought really was different from what I was thinking when I was 11, and now I was 12, and I started thinking like that. Ways we think can be different, and of course, one of the things that defines adolescence is um, that it's a period between childhood dependency and adult responsibility. So if you had to say, as we get started, well, okay, the mind is changing in adolescence, let's get even more basic. What does that mean, adolescence? <clears throat> and let me just ask you something, because I'm having some feedback. Does this, does my voice sound normal? It sounds, something is, sounds pretty, to me, sounds pretty funky. How about this? Is that better down here? Do I even need this? I need this. In the middle. So I was hearing that, I go, wow, that is one weird dude. Sarah's going to adjust the bass or something like that. Hello, hold up. Thank you, Sarah. Do you all know Sarah? Yes. Yes. Okay, is this better? Yes. Okay, great. Not better for my sweatshirt, but that's okay. Okay. It's still okay. All right, good. So is this, does this sound more like a normal voice? Okay. Wow, I was having like an out-of-body experience. I was going, who is talking? And I was, trying to, I was trying to listen to what he was saying. I said, what is he saying? You know? Okay, so, so what is adolescence? You know, adolescence is this period between childhood and adulthood. And some people have said, let's drop the term, because why do you need something between anything? Why can't you just go from childhood to adulthood? You know, what's the problem with that? So uh, I have two kids. Uh, one is uh, almost done with her teen years, um, and the other is in, uh, 24. And as they were leaving their teenage years, um, you know, I started looking more deeply into literature, both in the scientific literature on adolescence uh, and also on the, the popular literature. And in the popular literature front, I don't know if you've seen these things, but what struck me was that um, there were a lot of these books out there for parents of adolescents that said, and have you seen these things, that adolescents are crazy. No. Have you seen that? Or that they're, they're lost or they're confused or stuff like this. It really, I felt insulting titles and things. So I thought, well, why? why? And they were very popular books. I said, what's, what's going on here? Um, and then there were just a couple of things for adolescents themselves that, that when I spoke to adolescents, they didn't find very accessible. So I looked for a book that was actually something that put adolescents in a positive light uh, for parents, and I actually had a hard time finding it. Um, and then I tried to find a book that was written for both adults and adolescents to read together. I mean, not, not like in bed or anything, like they're reading, like I'm going to read you a story, but I mean like read at the same time. Um, and I couldn't find anything. So, uh, so I thought, well, what, there might, that might be an interesting challenge to put together a book that summarized the science of adolescence, that took a look at what these distorted things that were being said uh, are really about, what the truths are, and then trying to present it out. Um, so I started putting that together, started reading the science after I reviewed all the popular literature and 
put that aside, and then I read the science. And there's some amazing things that have come out in the last 12 years that most people don't know about that have actually taken what our common uh, beliefs are about adolescence and basically um, set up a totally different way of thinking about the adolescent period. So then I started writing something, and, and my wife was noticing that I was really, really agitated because it's, it was unbelievably difficult to try to find the kind of voice that could speak to an adolescent and a voice that would also speak to an adult. That was really difficult. So some friends of mine said, why don't you take this book you're writing and put the odd pages will be for the adults and the even pages will be for the, the adolescents and just write two books that are kind of like that, you know, and that, that when someone reads it, they can sneak over to the other side and read what you're saying the other side. So I actually tried that for about 15 minutes. And, uh, and it was really, it was just the opposite of what I wanted to do. So I, I tried to put this thing together where people could um, read this um, one woven book. Uh, and it was absolutely the hardest book I ever wrote. And when I was, when I was putting it together, um, I then would send it out to adolescents and adults. I would get their feedback. I rewrote it based on their comments, sent it out again, rewrote it, sent it out again, rewrote it. And then finally, what you have is the final product. And I give you this to you as a background because you, uh, to understand where this comes from, we have interpersonal neurobiology on the one hand, synthesizing all the science. We have our cultural myths on the other hand. And what we're going to do is slowly look at these cultural myths um, and understand what's, what's really going on and why the, the story that's told about adolescence is not only wrong, but it's actually destructive. And so then I got really animated uh, at home just thinking, wow, this is really a terrible, terrible situation where what adolescents are being told about themselves is actually disempowering to them. It's destroying a potential that's actually there. It's making parents believe false things. Uh, and as you'll see, there are other aspects of these, these myths, these, these, these uh, misleading ideas that actually distort the very way you come to live on the planet. Uh, and even when we talk about planetary health, you'll see that these myths actually create a negative pathway um, that we'll talk about. So, so the presentation on Brainstorm that we're going to do then builds on science. And I want to talk a little bit about that so you understand where it's coming from. And if you are particularly uh, a person particularly oriented to learning about science, I just want to mention some places you can turn to, because I know I'll forget it later on. And then you'll say, where, where was that coming from? So I just want you to know. So in my own work, you know, I, um, I was born. And then I, I grew up actually in Los Angeles, if you can do that. Um, and, I, and I grew up, uh, and I was always interested as a kid in, in what life was about. I was really, really fascinated with, with living things. Um, and so I was a biology major when I went to college. And um, I had this very um, uh, powerful experience where I was working in a laboratory to try to discover how salmon could go from fresh water where they were hatched to salt water and not die. Like, how did they make that transition? You know? And then at night, I decided to volunteer for a suicide prevention service. And I was taught how the way you talk to a person in a crisis on the phone could make the difference between whether that person chose to kill themselves or chose to live. 
And that for me as an adolescent, you know, I was an adolescent in college, because uh, adolescence goes till 24, 25 years of age, um, I was really struck by this notion that emotional communication in a relationship, even on the phone with someone you just met, could make the difference between life or death. And a molecular change in the way a salmon was adjusting to this change in their environment could make the difference between life and death. And we actually found the enzyme that allowed this sub thing, the salmon to do this thing, which is pretty exciting. Um, but I was really interested in tying those two together. How our relational, emotional lives somehow were as vitally important as our chemistry in our body. So when I went to medical school to try to put those two things together, like, like they were going to be put together, that was my goal. Um, but what I found was this really strange thing that will give you where this, the background of science of interpersonal neurobiology comes from. That's why I'm telling you this story. It, it, it was clear that um, when I was entering the clinics in my first year, a lot of the, the um, professors didn't focus on the inner life of their patients. So if they had, let's say, a, a, a laboratory test that said this patient had a disease and they were going to die, they would go into a room. We would follow them as the medical students. They'd say, you know, we have your lab results. We have your lab results, and you're going to die. You probably have two or three months. I'm sorry. Goodbye. And that was it. And I would, like, you know, pull on their white coat and say, excuse me, excuse me. And they'd say, yes, what? I'd say, um... Don't you want to talk to them about their feelings? And they go, why? I've told them what they need to know. And, and you know, it was so different from what I learned on the suicide prevention service, you know, that I, mean, I can go over story and story and story, but I'll just give you the bottom line was I dropped out of school because I didn't want to become like those people. So I decided I was either become a dancer or a salmon fisherman. You know, and so I tried dance, and I don't really have the body of a dancer you'd want to watch on stage. So then I thought of being a choreographer, uh, and then I discovered I really wasn't interested in how dance looked. I was really interested in how dance felt. So then I'd probably starve to death as a choreographer. Um, so then I went for the salmon fishing option, and then I was um, winding my way through Vancouver Island, where the salmon are, right? And I got a ride with somebody, um, and he goes, so... Uh, well, what's your story? And I said, well, I used to be a medical student, but I dropped out. And he goes, what are you doing here in Vancouver Island? I said, well, I'm going to be a salmon fisherman. He goes, that's amazing. I said, what's so amazing about that? He goes, I am a salmon fisherman, and I'm dropping out to become a professor of psychology. <laughs> and I'm looking for that guy <laughs> because he saved me a lot of time. Anyway, after the long ride, he explained to me why he's dropping out, and I realized that's not the life for me. I mean, they get up at 3 in the morning, and all they're doing is this all day long. So there's this romantic notion. But I was very interested in transitions, you know. So, um, so when I ultimately went back to school, uh, after realizing I was very interested in our inner experience, um, I, I made up this word, which becomes the foundation for the Brainstorm book and, and actually the foundation for interpersonal neurobiology, too. The word is mindsight. So this is in 1980 um, that I, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to go back to school, but I'll bet those professors haven't changed. You know, so I need something to protect me from becoming like them. So I said, they're not seeing the mind. They're not focusing their attention 
on the internal intention or narrative or feelings or meanings or inner texture of subjective lived life. That's all what we mean by what I mean by the word mind. They weren't seeing the mind of their patients or their students. And so this word mindsight became my, my life preserver. And when I was back in the clinics, I would notice many of the professors didn't use mindsight. Maybe they didn't have it, I don't know, but they certainly didn't use it with their patients. And I would tell myself, that's how you're not supposed to be. It's like seeing a bad play. You know, sometimes it's good to see a bad play because you really appreciate the good one. Um, so I had a lot of bad plays I was seeing. Um, so I would constantly tell myself that. When I went into pediatrics, I noticed that some families, after medical school, some families had mindsight and some didn't. And if they were facing a really difficult challenge, you know, these kids we got at UCLA were very, where I did my training, they were very ill. We got kids from all over Western United States. And if a family, the parents, didn't have mindsight abilities to see the mind in themselves or others, they really, really struggled. And those that had this ability actually were more resilient, even in the face of life-threatening illnesses and death. So that became really, that struck me that, wow, this is really something that made a difference between approaching a difficult experience with equanimity or approaching it and falling apart. So when I switched to psychiatry, um, psychiatry is the caretaking of the mind, supposedly, but it, it, it had been a field that was struggling to find an identity. This is now, we're talking about 1984. And um, there were lots of pressures on the field to reduce the mind that is the psyche means, actually, do you know what psyche means? Soul. It's the soul, that's right. The soul, the spirit, the intellect, or the mind. And so a psychiatrist um, in those days was really looking to some way of finding an identity. And all sorts of factors were pushing these diagnostic categories and all this other kind of other stuff. And so the mind was kind of getting lost. In, in many ways. And so I went into child psychiatry after adult psychiatry, and then went into research psychiatry. And I became a researcher in uh, attachment, which is uh, hard to say in a place um, which has Buddhist origins, because <laughs> the word attachment in, in Buddhism is actually very different from attachment in, uh, in research terms. Um, although maybe they are similar, but, but let's, let's, we'll see. So attachment research is basically a field of psychology that studies the relationship between a child and a parent. And that's called an attachment relationship. And all mammals have attachment. It's the way our young depend on the care of the older ones. And you, usually it's the mother or the father or the Holy Ghost. And you, you know, you, it's the mother or father. The parent takes care of the infant. And we humans have an interesting kind of attachment. Sarah Hurdy, H-R-D-Y, talks beautifully about this book called in Mothers and Others, that we have more than one attachment. That is, we do not have just an attachment to the mother and that attachment is really based on selective few attachments. And we raise our children, we're supposed to raise our children by how we evolved, in communities of care that are collaborative. And that's been lost in modern culture. So as we, as we look into the details, I'm sort of building this frame of interpersonal neurobiology so you can see where all this is coming from. So for me, as an attachment researcher, I was very interested in how relationships shape the mind. And now we're up to 1989, 1990. And some of you may remember 1990 was the decade of the brain began. And we could look underneath the skull at the way the brain functioned. And so I became very interested because when I was in medical school, the people who taught me about the brain, uh, David Hubel, 
uh, he received the Nobel Prize for discovering how experience early in an organism's life shapes the structure of the brain. That's what he got the Nobel Prize for, and we were all excited about that. Um, so I was really struck, even though we didn't know much about it then, that experience would change the architecture of the brain. So in 1990, then you have this uh, beginning of the ability to look beneath the skull of a healthy functioning brain and ask questions like, how do relationships change the structure of the brain? Right? And this is, this is now a, a really exciting moment. And in psychiatry, we're, we weren't even looking at that. So the question that arose for me uh, when I became the training director in child psychiatry was, could you actually build a model of human experience based on all the different disciplines of science? So bringing math and physics and chemistry and biology and medicine, including psychiatry and psychology and sociology and anthropology and everything in between. Could you take all that hard work of disciplined efforts to understand reality and bring them together into one framework? And that's where interpersonal neurobiology comes from. That's the frame you need to know about. So I wrote a book called The Developing Mind, which lays that out. And then I've edited 36 textbooks. Uh, I'm the, the editor where, if, uh, where you have a professional library if you're interested in this. So if you're interested in learning of any of that stuff, there's three dozen books you can read if you like that stuff. There's a bunch of translations of interpersonal neurobiology for parents. So the whole brain child, I wrote with Tina Bryson, a student, now a colleague of mine, is one example. Um, Parenting from the Inside Out with Mary Hartzell is another example. And now you have Brainstorm is the third example. Um, there are books that translate it for the general public, like Mindsight, um, and other books for mindfulness practitioners, the mindful brain. So there's a whole bunch of things out there. And I know I'll forget. and uh, people back home will be really mad at me. We have a research center at UCLA called the Mindful Awareness Research Center, so you can see what we're doing. We have an educational institute, the Mindsight Institute, which has an online program. So all that stuff, you can look up and see what we do. And we have another center called the Center for Culture, Brain, and Development, where we study how culture changes the architecture of the brain. So all those things are very active, sort of educational, academic things. So that's the background. So when I set out to write Brainstorm, you know, I knew I had thousands of research articles in the things I had done. So I didn't want to burden this book that an adolescent might read with this kind of stuff. I wanted it to be just really practical and useful and just laying it out. So this is, this is where um, uh, you can draw on this, this large library and then find how can you actually find the practical applications of it. So that's where you know. So I'm going to focus primarily today on the useful conclusions. But if in our discussion period you want to know more, more of the science, I'm happy to talk about it. That's not what we're aiming for today. We're really aiming for practical usage of stuff. But I give you that background just so now we can relax and not worry about that. All that stuff is there. It's all literally published. It's out there. It's a very vibrant academic and uh, clinical set of processes. We have an annual meeting that we do. We have all sorts of things we do that uh, are available to you. Okay, any questions about that? Uh, so we can leave that aside and get to the other stuff. Yes? Can you tell us one story about um, suicides and how that maybe gives, it makes a difference how you talk to them? The question is, can I offer one story about suicide and how it makes a difference? Sure, I mean, uh, you know, this is just basically a clinical question, but, you, you know, people can feel like they're not understood 
And if you, uh, in speaking to someone, even on a crisis center, can tune in to where a person actually is and be present for what they're experiencing, not judging them, uh, really bringing a fullness of your presence, and you attune to them. I, I remember this with the word part, P-A-R-T. You are present, you attune, you allow yourself to feel what they're feeling so they don't feel alone anymore. And that generates T, trust, and a sense of hope. So that's, you know, whatever the situation is, if you instead say, oh, you know, you don't need to kill yourself, or, you know, that's kind of a stupid thing to think about doing, why would you do that? You know, which a lot of people say, uh, and, and logically that makes sense, why would you kill, your, you know, this kind of thing, then the person hangs up and that's it. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Yes? What was the R in your part? Resonating. So resonating, let's do the part. The part is... The part is useful, you know, and this is in the brainstorm book, you'll see it. So um, the idea is presence is a fundamental state of mind where you are open. And we could talk about the brain correlates of this, and we talk about the mental experience of it, and we talk about the relational experience of it. So as we go through these things, there's always these three uh, aspects of one reality. There's mind, there's brain, and there's relationships. And everything we're going to talk about has that, that, that depth to it. So if you think about a coin, if I hand you a coin and it was in your hand, and if I said, is it heads or tails, you go, no, 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 it is heads and tails, and it's also an edge. The same is true with human experience. Human experience has an embodied part, it has a relational part, and it has the mental part of subjective experience and consciousness. So you can, you can, these three are always woven together, and so in terms of the presence, the presence has the internal part is literally this state of openness to things. And later on when we do an exercise, we'll, we'll get into what the science of presence probably is. And I, I just wrote a, a, a scientific paper with Alyssa Eppel and uh, Benjamin Nelson and uh, Suzanne Parker, two of my interns. And Alyssa Eppel and I, who's, Alyssa's up here, I don't even know if she's in the room, but she's nearby. She's a wonderful scientist who does work on presence and telomerase levels. Telomerase is an enzyme that, um, that Elizabeth Blackburn won the Nobel Prize for discovering, and Elizabeth works with Elizabeth Blackburn, and, and what they've discovered is that presence increases telomerase levels. And telomerase is important because it's an enzyme that repairs and maintains the ends of your chromosomes, so every time a cell reproduces itself, you know, it can whittle down those ends of your chromosomes, and after a while, it makes the chromosomes where your DNA is ragged and your cells are not so healthy. So telomerase is a good thing to have. And what we now know is that presence is the key issue uh, of the mind that changes the body state to allow telomerase, the enzyme levels, to rise and for the ends of your chromosomes to be repaired and maintained. So a study going on now at UC San Francisco is looking at, it isn't completed yet, can you take people who are uh, the caretakers of individuals who are chronically ill and actually teach them mindfulness practices, that, which are one known way to develop presence, um, so that you are uh, actually helping them to combat what we do know, which is that if you're the caretaker of someone who's chronically ill, your telomerase levels lower, your telomeres get whittled down faster, and you age and die sooner. I mean, that we know. So why not offer a mental training practice, mindfulness, that is known to increase presence, and presence increases telomerase, and therefore you can actually be healthier, literally. 
So this is, this is an example of the presence part. So presence from a neurological point of view is creating these conditions that I think are a part of what's called integration that we'll talk about later on. And uh, that's fundamentally what presence is about from an embodied point of view. From a mind point of view, it's a state of receptivity to allow things to enter you, not be swept up by judgments about them, and let yourself literally stay with something. That's what presence means. You don't just quickly got to get rid of it, or if someone's on the phone, you say, you shouldn't be suicidal. No, 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 no. You know, or you know, if someone is feeling something bad, you, know, you say, ah, that, you shouldn't feel something bad. Well, no, they are feeling something bad. You know, um, that's, what, that's what the mental side of presence is. The relational side of presence is you feel felt by another person. And that is probably the most important relational emotion you can feel. And a patient of mine named this, you know, a long, long time ago, back in, I don't remember what year it was, 83 or something, 84. And I, she got better in therapy. I had no idea why. You know, and I was a first-year student. I wasn't doing what my teachers were telling me to do because I didn't understand what they were saying. They were telling me all this stuff, and I, I felt so lost. <laughs> and uh, so I would just do what I thought was the right thing to do. And this patient, a graduate student, she got better, and she was leaving for a postdoc somewhere else. So I said, well, you know, at the end of therapy, um, at this program, uh, um, uh, yeah, we have uh, exit interviews. Yeah, we have exit interviews where we talk about what happened. She goes, well, that sounds like a great idea. I said, yeah, so what happened? She goes, oh, it's obvious. I said, yeah, I know it's obvious, but how, 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 how would you put words to it? She goes, oh, well, she goes, never before in my life did I ever have the experience of feeling felt by anyone. And with you, I have felt felt. It was amazing, you know? So I always quote her. I can't say her name, but I always think about her. Um, it was just such a beautiful articulation of this that explains attachment research, it explains psychotherapy, it explains, I think, mindfulness and the relational component of mindfulness. It explains this whole idea of what you would do with suicide thing. I mean, her statement is so beautiful, feeling felt, you know? And um, so it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful phrase that she has. So, Ultimately, this is what presence relationally creates. Now, how do you do that? Well, you attune to someone. Attunement is this way where you're focusing attention on the internal state of either another person for internal attunement or yourself for mindfulness. I think mindful awareness is fundamentally internal attunement. You are intentionally focusing your attention on your internal state with presence. That's it. At least that's my non, I'm not trained as a meditation teacher or anything, so I'm a complete you know, novice at mindfulness, but that's my take on mindfulness. It's a form of internal attunement. And interpersonal attunement is what secure attachment is based on, which is my field. So that's the attunement thing. Resonance, to get to the R, the question of the R, resonance is where you allow your embodied system to be influenced by the embodied system of somewhere else, some, of someone else, so you don't become the other person. This is really, really important, but you are changed because of the other person. So a young uh, uh, therapy student, a daughter of a friend of mine, she was struggling working in a, a really painful. Um, it was a clinic with a lot of very painful 
uh, child abuse cases, and she was ready to quit. So I talked to her parents, and I said, just have her come see me. And I, I sat her down, and I said, look, tell me what you're doing, because you're burnt out already. You've only been doing this for six months. She goes, well, you know, I go with the patient, and I sit down with them, with the client, and they tell me what's going on, and, and I just feel so depressed and so overwhelmed. I can't believe they were abused like that. And I go, what do you think in your mind? And she goes, well, well I'm, empath I'm empathic. What do you mean? I'm, empath I'm supposed to be empathic. I'm empathic. I said, what is empathy for you? She goes, empathy for me is I imagine, what if that were me? And she takes on the emotions of the other, because she's an incredibly open and receptive and empathic person. She takes on the emotions of the other and becomes the other as much as we can, which, of course, is not what she should be doing. So I said, oh, I see. I see, you, you're defining empathy as becoming the other person. She goes, of course that's what it is. Now, in a way, empathy means path is to feel and M is in. Feel yourself inside the other person. So she's right in a way. Um, but, of course, she's done with her, with her practice. Six months, she's done. She's going to go sell real estate or something, which is fine. But you don't have that same burnout. So I said to her, I said, let me tell you about a study. They do put people in a scanner. They have them either do what you're doing, where they think, what if that were me? They show them a, ter a terrible car accident, and they say, imagine if that were you. And then the, the other condition is, same photograph, different subjects. They say, imagine what it feels like to be that person. And the brain's response is completely different. In the first case, where you imagine if that were you, you're totally burnt out, and your brain shuts down. In the second case, you activate the circuitry of compassion, where you feel the other person's feelings, and you get ready to act to help them. So compassion is an act not of becoming the other, but of resonating with the other enough to know their suffering and, to get, and have the resilience inside of you to go out and help. Right? So that was it. It was a 30-minute little chat we had, and it totally turned everything around. And now she's doing great. She's a, a, a very resilient therapist now. Uh, but it was that simple. You know? And so this is why thinking about this part we play, resonance is not mirroring. You don't mirror someone. You don't become the other person as a mirror, you know, as identical. And this develops trust. So, so this is the idea. And there's a whole neurobiology of trust. The feeling of trust is a sense like things are going to be okay and I can rely on this. And the, the relational part of trust is you really feel like you are a part of a larger we. And we'll see all that. So this is just the interpersonal neurobiology question I'm responding to. But we'll, 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 we'll show how this relates to adolescence. Okay, so let's dive into the adolescent story. And, yes? Yeah, oh, so the question is, tell us about the book, and that's a good entree into this, into moving into the book. So, so the, I said that, you know, when I was really having a hard time, because this was the hardest book I've ever written, the, the, the um, the suggestion was write the odd pages for one group, the even pages. I did not do that. I mean, I did that for 15 minutes and then I stopped. Um, so the book is written for, it's one conversation with both an adult and an adolescent. There are not adolescent parts and there are not adult parts. It's for everybody. Every word is for everybody. Um, and you know, I've been, I've been practicing as a, a psychiatrist for 30 years uh, and I've been seeing specifically adolescents and um, uh, their families for almost that amount of years. So, you know, that's what I do in my practice. So it, 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 once I realized that, that it should be one conversation, that's how the book is. And the book, you know, the, the way the book is framed is, um, it's, it, that's your question, it starts out basically saying, which we're, we're going to do now, you know, what are the 
What are the myths of adolescence that people believe and why are those destructive? What are the truths? So we'll go through that. Then it goes through a whole thing about the brain to understand what the brain is about. And then it goes through a whole thing about relationships. So it goes deeply into attachment, which we'll do. And then it goes through examples just to show that if you had to think about one word as an adolescent to help you with your adolescence or one word as an adult who's supporting adolescence, it would be the word presence. That if the adolescence develops presence or the adult develops presence, that's going to be the most important thing to remember. And so it gives example after example after example of the, the power of presence to catalyze well-being within and between. Yeah, and then between those different sections, there are these things called mindsight skill building sections, which are, if you see in the book, these gray pages. So it, it has these sections. You know, these days, and I can ask the adolescents in the room, you know, what, what my adolescents told me was that they weren't so sure adolescents would have the patience to read an entire book these days because you could go on YouTube and watch something in two minutes. Now, do you think that, is that true? Good. Yay. Good. Well, I think that's true. She says, I think I can read the whole book. Absolutely. So one thing to help with that YouTube influence on our culture is, you know, the book is divided into four sections. And I say in the beginning, you know, you can read the first section and you can read whatever section you want to. You make whatever order you want to read it in. And also the gray pages are exercises. Some people just like to do the exercises. So what are the exercises about? They're mindsight skill building exercises that we'll go through as we do it. Okay, so let's dive into the, the, the whole notion of adolescence and what the myths are and really explore um, why these myths are so harmful and what the truths are really about. So um, the first myth that we've talked about is this notion that uh, adolescents uh, are crazy. And it's something that is implicit in a, a lot of ways people say, well, Oh my God, my 10 year old's gonna be an adolescent soon. Oh no, oh no, like this. Um, and a related myth is that um, adolescence is a period of time that you just have to get through and hopefully you're gonna survive it, right? Ooh, like, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna just uh, grab onto it. When instead, not only are teens and ad older adolescents not crazy, but actually the changes that we now know about their brains are actually changes that we need to actually cultivate. They're not about being crazy. They're actually about being unbelievably innovative. That's number one. The issue of it's a period you just have to get through is if someone tells you where you're at now is so horrendous, oh, I'm so sorry for you, you know, that you just, you will pick up the messages from the culture messages from the school you're in, messages from your parents, messages from your peers, and you will believe the bullshit. It's wrong. And it will make, it'll make you lose the opportunity of realizing there are things that happen to adolescents that are actually not only things you shouldn't just get over, you should try to actually hold on to them as you move into adulthood. And adults who've lost them, as you'll see, actually have lost out on something. So the message is harmful for adolescents and it's harmful for adults. That message, just get over it. A fourth myth, what do we have? That they're crazy, that they're, uh, you just get over it. No, I guess this is the third one, is that they're immature. You know, the word immature is, uh, has built into it this notion 
that where you're at right now has really no value and you just really got to grow up and become an adult, which is really condescending. And it's wrong, as you're going to see. It's just plain out wrong. And yet people believe it, that you're supposed to go from here to there, because that's what immature means, right? You're just not mature yet. You're lacking maturity. So, of course, you're acting this way. And even the word adolescent, for some people, has become an insult. Oh, so adolescent of you, right? So this is, this is terrible. These, these are all not good things. Another myth, whatever number we're on, is the myth that, and how many of you have heard this, that raging hormones drive adolescents mad. Have any of you heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard that. It's wrong. Now, first of all, one of the problems with being wrong is it's just misleading, and that's not good. Truth is always your friend. But the other thing about this thing is if you have raging hormones that are driving you mad, like the myth says, um, there's actually nothing you can do about it. If your hormones are raging, they're raging. When in fact, as you'll see, when there are th you can come up here. Come on up. It's fine. Um, when, you, when we see that the issue is remodeling of the brain, we now know from studies of neuroplasticity that you can do something about your brain, whatever's happening to it. You know, whatever's happening with your brain, you can actually use your mind to change the function and even the structure of your brain in helpful ways. So the raging hormone story is not only wrong, it's disempowering and it's misleading. It's a destructive misinformation that's out there. But everybody believes that. I've taught at a bunch of schools now since the book has come out and, and it's just before it came out, you know, where I'll teach the parent group and I'll teach the teachers and I'll teach the students. And everybody has this belief, oh, raging hormones, you know. So let's look at what the truths are about this because there's some very important uh, new insights that we're going to get. A final myth, or maybe not a final one, but another myth that we need to look at is um, that the adolescent period is a period of a lot of danger, which is actually true. Adolescents have bodies that are three times stronger in many ways for fighting off illnesses. Not three times, they're much, much stronger. But unfortunately, they're three times as likely to get injured or die than at other periods of time. So when parents, just so you know, when parents get nervous about the safety of an adolescent, it's founded in science. It is a very dangerous period of time that preventable injuries and death, preventable, happen three times more likely during adolescence. Now, the myth about that is it's because adolescents are impulsive. Reckless. They're reckless. But actually, that, well, impulsivity is there, especially in the beginning of adolescence. The dangerous and behavior that leads to these negative outcomes is actually due to something else that we're going to talk about, that you can do something about. It's not just the lack of growing of the maturity of the prefrontal cortex, which you hear people talk about. That's actually not true. Yet it's, it's believed. There's a whole other thing going on that we're going to talk about. So you can see from these myths that are wrong that it sets up a, a negative feedback loop where adolescents are going to be told things about themselves that are wrong, and the belief about them actually can create your own worst nightmare. You know, I'll give you an example. In, in classes, you can go and tell a teacher, 
you know, the kids on the left side of your class, I'm sorry, but they're really, they don't have many skills. They're kind of dumb, and I'm really sorry we had to put them in your class. The kids on the right side, oh my God, they're really gifted. And then you see the scores on the right side kids rise, and the scores on the left side kids. And then you go into the teacher, you go, oh my God, we made a terrible mistake. <laughs> we, it was wrong. I mean, the left side ones, they are so talented. They have so much potential on those right side, and then the scores switch. A teacher's belief about the capacity of a student evokes from the student the potential that they have or don't have. So think about that from this adolescent point of view. If we have a whole culture and a whole curriculum and a whole set of teachers and parents that are going around with these misunderstandings about adolescence, think about how it's evoking from adolescents the very thing we're saying that they have. This is a really serious hidden problem. It's kind of like the water that a fish swims in. You don't even realize that it's happening. That's what culture is. It's this water, it's the air we breathe. We don't even realize that it's toxic. So one of the things that I just want to have you think about as we're going to go through the details of each of these myths is there is an opportunity to not only take your own life, if you are an adolescent hearing this, or you're an adult caring for it, bless you. But let's have a bless you for everyone who's going to sneeze today. Bless you. That it's not only about your own life or your relational life, it's also about the cultural conversation about adolescence that you can participate in transforming. You know, that this is a moment when we as a whole culture can shift our approach to this incredibly important period of time. So let's examine these myths one by one and let's see what's actually going on uh, inside of the mind of the adolescent, the body, including the brain of the adolescent, uh, and the relationships in adolescence, uh, and see how that goes. So let's, let's do it this way. Um, let's start with the overall picture of why do we have adolescence and who has adolescence. As you probably know, the only people who experience adolescence are Californians. <laughs> no. The, actually, adolescence exists. If we define adolescence, let's start from the most basic thing. Adolescence is defined as the period of life between childhood and adulthood. That's the simplest way of just saying what it is. Now, some people have argued, let's drop it. But actually, if you look at all our mammalian cousins, for the most part, Mammals, not just humans, and certainly not just Californians, have adolescence. There is a transition between the dependency of a child and the, let's call it the responsibility of an adult. Right? That these are uh, very different things, the adult responsibility and the childhood dependency. So let me give you a little scenario just to paint the picture on how to begin to approach adolescence as a period of time and even adolescence as individuals um, to understand this. Okay? So you can close your eyes if you want. I'm just going to try to uh, describe this sensation for you. Just imagine this. Imagine that you're in bed sleeping. It's dark. You're having this wonderful, wonderful sleep. And the sun begins to rise, and the rays of sunlight 
start coming through the window. And then someone gently opens up the door to your room and comes and gives you a kiss on your forehead and says, good morning, sweetie. What would you like for breakfast? And you begin to stir a little bit, and then you say, oh, dad or mom, you know, I'll have some oatmeal. And they go, okay, I'll see you soon. And then soon you smell the oatmeal cooking, and you get up, and you get your clothes on after you go to the bathroom, and then you go, and you go into the kitchen, and there the breakfast is there for you. You eat your breakfast. You put on your shoes. You get ready to go, let's say, to preschool. And then you go to preschool, and you play. You learn how to share some toys. You have a snack. You come home, maybe have a little lunch, you take a nap. Then you wake up from your nap. Let's say you dance around to some music. You play outside. You come in, you watch a little TV. And then someone says, hey, sweetie, what would you like for dinner? And then they make you dinner. And then you watch a little more TV. And then you're getting a little tired, so someone gives you a bath and scrubs you down. Then they give you a massage. And then they sing you a song and read you a story. And you fall off to sleep. And day after day, you have this experience. Now, who would ever want to leave that? Yeah. So just think about adolescence this way. If nature didn't do something to change the brain, you'd be living at home at 60 or 70 years of age, wouldn't you? You'd have to literally be out of your mind to give that up. In fact, I know a lot of spouses who are trying to get that from their partner. So just as a starting point, we're going to say something kind of obvious, but actually it's amazing how few people think about this. The adolescent period is a change in the function and structure of the brain to get the child ready to leave home. To leave home, the beautiful home, right? <laughs> to get ready to give that up. Now, what are they giving up? They're giving up the familiar, the certain, and the safe. Now, I understand for a, a pretty huge percentage of kids, not the majority, but a big percentage, it isn't safe. And home is not a good place. I understand that. But just let's assume for a moment we're talking about secure attachment and a, a loving home like that. So what is the brain going to do to get you ready to experience and be driven to uncertain things, unfamiliar things, and unsafe things. It's got to do some pretty serious changes. So to get a child ready to leave home is a serious remodeling effort in the foundation of the brain that's been set up during the first 12 years of life. So if we just say childhood is the first dozen years of life, we now know that adolescence is not the same as teenage years. It actually goes into the mid-20s. That's a first in breaking of another myth. It's not the same as teenage years. And it's not even the same as puberty. You know, puberty is the onset of sexual maturation with the ovaries and the testicles developing, the development of secondary sexual characteristics. And hormones absolutely rise. And so all sorts of new feelings are there, sexual feelings and physiological sensations that you didn't have before. There's no question about that. Puberty is an important part of, of adolescence, but it's not the same as adolescence. Because what we now know from the last dozen years of brain science 
is that there are structural changes in the brain that blew everybody's mind when they found them. Really shocked everybody. No one predicted that this would be happening. Nobody. But they found them when at UCLA we did studies with Elizabeth Sewell, a colleague of mine, and others, uh, 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 Morella DiPreto, uh, systematic studies of the same individual growing up and watching their brain change. Never done before. Jay Geed at NIH was able to do this, NIMH, and was able to do these studies. So we now know things we didn't know before that bust all the myths. Just bust all the myths. And why are these changes happening? The place we're starting with is getting ready to leave home. So the way to think about childhood is this, is you're born into the world. And in fact, let's do, let's do a brief, um, just so you can, we're going to be really super grounded. We have the time to do this. We're going to do a brief overview of how childhood shapes the brain. So I want to thank uh, our Spirit Rock Center here because they were so kind to actually get up early this morning and they have taped underneath your chair or actually underneath your Zafu a model of the brain. So if you reach, reach underneath and see if you can feel it there and pull out your arm and you'll see attached to your arm is a hand. <laughs> And this is actually a handout you can take home with you. So, so take your hand model of the brain. Let's, let's thank the, the center here. So in this, this model, if you put your thumb in the middle and put your fingers over the top, this will be basically oriented in your head like this. This is the hand model of the brain. And you'll see uh, the first drawing of this my daughter actually did in Parenting from the Inside Out. So you'll see Maddie's uh, drawing of the hand there. Um, and this is basically a very useful model because it encapsulates a way that anyone can understand um, uh, the, the way the brain's functioning. It's very useful for physicians, for example, who aren't taught that much about the brain. Um, and it's useful for parents. I'm, I'm, seri I'm serious about that. Actually, I am serious about that. Um, so you can actually learn about it. Um, and it helps you because you can see how the brain changes within relationships, how the brain changes in mindfulness practice, how the brain changes through adolescence. It's very, very useful all these ways. So if you lift up the fingers and lift up the thumb, uh, let's review the major parts. The, the wrist represents the spinal cord that's in your neck. It comes up your backbone. The first major area here is in your palm. It's called the brain stem. Deep old structure we'll talk about soon. The Second structure is the limbic area. We'd have two of them to be a perfect model. Most of us just have one thumb. So left and right limbic area. I say that because I, I never used to say that. And then someone emailed me and said, you know, you said um, we only have one thumb. But I went to a, a gas station, and the, the, the attendant had two thumbs. So you shouldn't let those people down. So I said, OK. <laughs> I, I totally respect that. Most of us have one thumb. I mean, it's true. So anyway, there's a left and right side of the brain. And then if you put the, the top fingers of the third part is the cortex, the highest part of the brain. Now, those of, any of you know this book, The Whole Brain Child? Yeah. yeah. So you know, Tina and I were trying to translate the developing mind for parents. So we just summarized this as the upstairs brain. And this down here is the downstairs brain. So those of you who are coming from the whole brain child approach will, under, will know those terms. Anyway, so let's go through each of the parts and talk about when they develop how they develop, and what they're about. Because to understand adolescence, and in the, in the brain part of that book, um, the brainstorm book, the, the reader is given a step-by-step -step 
understanding of this. So basically, at birth, the brain stem is well-formed, and it has areas that regulate your heart and your intestines, areas that determine whether you're awake or asleep, and areas that govern your reaction to threat. So the fight, flight, freeze, and faint mechanisms, those are four Fs when you're threatened. You can fight back. You can run away by fleeing, you can tighten your muscles and freeze, or you can completely faint and collapse. Those are the four ways we have of responding to threat that are mediated in the brainstem. A study at UCLA said that females use a higher non-brainstem mechanism called tendon-befriend, but that's a whole different adaption, adaptation that uses other structures. But these brainstem structures are fight, flight, freeze, and faint. Okay. Um, let me give you a little bit of a feeling for what that feels like as we go through so you can see what that's like. So if you put your stuff down, I'm just going to say a word, repeat it several times, say another word, and just I want you just to let the feelings arise in you so you can sense what this is like. So I'll say a word, repeat it, pause, then I'll say another word, repeat it, pause, and just let yourself feel whatever you feel. No. 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 Yes. 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 <coughs> yes. Yes. I invite you to take a deep breath. Let's just do one more bit of this exercise. Put one hand on your chest and one hand on your abdomen and put a little pressure. Just notice how that feels. And then switch it out where the hand on your chest goes to your belly and the one on your belly goes to your chest. Put a little pressure. And notice how that feels. Now put it whichever way feels most comfortable for you. Okay. Now when you're ready, you can open your eyes. And uh, let me just ask a couple quick questions. How many of you clearly felt that putting a hand on your chest and a hand on your belly, whichever one, whichever was which, helped you feel comforted? Raise your hand. Okay, great. And let's just do a quick review of those who felt comforted. Who felt clearly one was better than the other? Okay, great. And how many of you felt left on top was best? Okay, and how many was right on top? So interesting. Okay. Does anyone want to get a PhD? 
Uh, and how many of you felt both were about the same? Okay, great. The reason I say about the PhD is that no one knows why that is the case. It's always about three quarters are right on top, one quarter is left on top. It's independent of left-handed or right-handedness, and it's about 95% of the population finds it comforting, and no one knows why. And you have a built-in control. This is why it would be easy to get a PhD, because your control group is the person. You study them like this, and I've done a study of one, and I'm a left-handed type person, and amazingly, I can show the alteration in my physiology when I do it this way versus when I do this. It's completely different. And then I went up to another person and hooked them up to this physiology measure, and I put my right hand on that person on his chest, and nothing changed. And I put my left hand on his chest, and he became completely what's called coherent. And he had no idea what I was doing. So anyway, that's probably two PhDs you can get. The relational thing. So anyway, someone should, someone should do that. It's really, really straightforward to do, and it would be an incredible gift. I only did that because you can see how you can also teach yourself to comfort yourself, that you learn this technique. Now, let's just, if you can remember, when I said the no, just shout out some words. What did no feel like? Startling, Startling scary, constriction. constriction. What's that? Jarring. Jarring. Untrue. Untrue. Trapped. Trapped. Painful. Painful. Okay. Now, that's all a state of threat. So I just wanted you to get the feeling, because we're talking about the brainstem, believe it or not. This is, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're experiencing a relational activation of your brainstem state of threat. And I'm not even telling you you can't have ice cream or something like that. You know, it's just I'm saying no with a harsh tone of voice. Okay? So, so that's the state of threat. Now, what did yes feel like? Inviting. Inviting. Warm. Warm true. Encouraging. Encouraging. Welcoming. Welcoming. Soothing. And you didn't trust me. Good. No. Yeah, you were still cautious. And then I was thinking about the NPR thing about how women take a longer time to deactivate. Yeah, so, so there's a whole analysis. She doesn't trust me. Very good. So you were wary. You were wary. But if you weren't wary, you could feel the openness. So the first thing to say about that in general is this brain we're talking about has two fundamental states. And an adolescent needs to understand this, and an adult, a parent, a teacher, whatever, needs to understand these fundamental states. One is a reactive state. The other is a receptive state. And relationships don't function well when we're coming from a place of reactivity. And the only way you can really know if you're reactive or not is by how you feel. And you can learn to shift from a reactive state to a receptive state. Okay. So that's the first thing to say, and then we're going to get to the, the um, adolescent part of that this, in a moment. Yes? Um, have you found that people feel the no and the yes in specific parts of their body? Yeah, people can feel it. You can, you can have a, um, a physiological sensation in your body that depends on your history and your temperament, all sorts of things, or your history. Um, and also, emotions are not the same as bodily sensations, but they're very intimately related, as we'll see in a moment. Um, yeah, so you can definitely feel it in different places, even at different times. Yes? Have you tried saying um, no in the soothing tone of voice? I have. I have tried that, and it's driven me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> the, the excellent question is about can I flip it so the, the tone of voice doesn't match the, 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 the word, and people more respond to the, the, uh, the tone. But, but the issue there, there's a, there's a test in psychology called the Stroop test, 
and it's like you'll show the word red in blue color and you'll show the word blue in red color or you'll show them in their own colors and you could show that you know the the mind is trying to make everything coherent and when you do something like that it kind of is jarring by itself right but it'll be it, you can you can do it um, for sure okay so the issue there is we have these reactive states now let's go to the limbic area and, and let's talk about the limbic area. So the limbic area is, unlike the brainstem, which is pretty much fully developed at birth, which means that genes have played a huge part in how the brainstem will develop. Because the brainstem is uh, from our old reptilian days, it's about 300 million years old, it's called the old reptilian brain. That's a name people put on it. The, if you put the limbic area, this is the old mammalian part of the brain, it developed 200 million years ago. And this old mammalian limbic area doesn't really have any defined beginnings or ends, so it's not really a system, though sometimes people call it limbic system. The limbic area has five things you should know about to understand adolescence, and they're, they're, they're all interrelated, so it doesn't, it's not that big a, a deal to remember them. But the, the limbic area works with the brainstem and the body, those three things. The body meaning your muscles, your hormones, your heart, your lungs, your intestines, that's literally what I mean by the body. The body sends signals up, interacts with what's going on in the brainstem, and works very closely with the limbic area to create, I was about to bless you, but we've already blessed you, uh, to create emotion. That's a cortical function we'll talk about next. Um, to create emotion. So emotion is generated from the body, the brainstem, and the limbic area working together. And just so you understand, for adolescence, studies show that the adolescent brain has more influence of the body, the brainstem, and the limbic area, that is, emotion, on cortical, the higher area of the brain, thinking, than in childhood or than in adulthood. So there is just more of an influence of these very important emotional states on other processes in life. So we're just going to name that an emotional spark. So there's no question there's an emotional spark. So one way that that happens, as you'll see, is um, it affects um, how we interact with each other. And so adolescents, for sure, can be moodier. They can feel more intensely. They can have feelings that arise and fall that if you give an emotion about 90 seconds, usually it can just arise, and if you're present with it, it's just like a wave on the beach just comes and goes. If you try to get rid of it, it'll intensify and grab you. If you, if you try to hold on to it, it can really become a big problem. So either clinging to it or shoving it away actually intensifies the way an emotion imprisons you. So presence, that thing we talked about before, this openness and receptivity allows you to be present even to your own emotional experience. And it's all the difference in the world if, let's say, an adolescent is given a mindfulness capacity to be present, so when an emotion arises in the adolescent brain, which is more emotional, it doesn't have to take them over versus an adolescent who isn't given those skills. And that's why in the book they learn those skills directly. I mean, I just teach them in the book. And it's a matter of literally making the brain what I call more integrated. But we'll talk about that very soon. OK, so, so, so we have um, emotion is number one. Number two, the limbic area is very important for motivation. 
And the limbic area works with the brainstem to motivate us. What's motivation? It's what gets us to act. It what drives us to think. So thinking in a way is internal action. So motivation shifts in adolescence. How a child is motivated is different from how an adolescent is motivated. Why? Because you're getting ready to leave home. You can always return to that as a baseline. So what gets you motivated is the way the limbic area and brainstem work together with an area of the brain we're going to talk about soon called the reward circuitry, which is structured by dopamine. It's influenced by a chemical that is the neurotransmitter of the system called dopamine. And we're going to talk about that soon. But basically, motivation shifts in adolescence as it needs to. Not because this person is crazy or their hormones are going nuts. No, because they're getting... Nature is changing the brain, remodeling this brain in ways we'll talk about that is getting ready for this individual to leave home. It must happen for our species to work well. So that's motivation changes for sure. And teachers don't know about this and they don't know how to capitalize on it, as you'll see. The third limbic function is something called appraisal. Appraisal is basically how the brain is evaluating the meaning of something that's happening. It evaluates the meaning and the simplest thing it says, is this thing worth paying attention to or not? Is it important or not? And if it's important, should, is it good? Should I get more of it? Is it bad? Should I get less of it? And once I do that, I, I uh, elaborate my appraisal. These circuits in the limbic area are hugely important. And you can tell me, as an adolescent, do you find what is meaningful for you now is different than what had meaning for you when you were six? Yeah, because your limbic area is changing, as it should. And that's natural. And teachers don't realize that. And so they, start, they keep on teaching adolescents the same way as they were teaching a kid, as if it's just a kid with a few more years of experience. But that's not true. They're not adjusting the curriculum to the natural changes in the brain of adolescence where the appraisal, motivation, and even emotional circuitry is necessarily changing. The fourth limbic function we won't talk about too much is just memory. It has to do with integrating different aspects of what are called implicit and explicit memory, but that's, that's a whole different topic. Um, the fifth thing that's really relevant for uh, our discussion of adolescence is the, the attachment function of the limbic area. So when a child is born, this limbic area is partially developed. And what happens is the attachment circuitry, which has its roots in the limbic area, this is our mammalian history, mammals have attachment, you know, fish and amphibians and reptiles don't. And they don't have much of a limbic area. We do. Birds have their own version of it. But we mammals really have this huge thing on attachments, one of our defining features. What is attachment for a baby? Attachment means a baby's relationship with an attachment figure, a parent, will help shape the way their brain grows. The baby, in turn, will be protected by the parent, and they'll get these four S's of attachment. They'll be seen by the parent, meaning their internal world is attuned to, if they have it well, like that kid who had breakfast, the oatmeal. Um, they'll be safe with the parent, meaning two things. They'll not only be protected from harm, but their parent will not be a source of terror. 
So seen, safe, soothed means if the child is distressed, the way this child uh, gets soothed is by the interactions with the parent. So you have seen, safe, soothed. And if all those are happening in a relatively consistent way and when they don't happen, the rupture is repaired, because there's no such thing as perfect parenting, then you get security. You get an overall sense of security um, that is what John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth called a mental model or a working model of security that allows you to use this safe base of your parent experience with your parents to go out and use them as a solid launching pad. Because that's really what attachment is about. It's about a safe base and a launching pad. So security is basically a way of summarizing when you've been seen, safe, and soothed. Consistently over time, when there's ruptures, they've been repaired. So in the section on attachment in the book, and if you read the book, I'd love to get your feedback about it. When I was sitting in a cabin finishing the final edits of the book, I got a call from somebody who'd read it and said, you must remove the attachment section of the book from the book. I said, well, tell me, tell me what you're feeling about that. And this person said, it's really not appropriate for you, and this was a, uh, like a quarter of the book, which I wouldn't have minded the book being shorter, so that wasn't really a problem. But um, he said, it's really not appropriate for you to be writing a book for adolescents to read when they still may be living with their parents who are also going to read this book, and you're telling them about how attachment could be, or maybe even how it should be, um, and what if it was not that way? You're going to create a lot of problems. And I said, well, I understand your point of view. And actually, I tried to remove it from the book just to see what that was like. And I had this horrible feeling in my heart and in my intestines that this was absolutely the wrong thing to do. But I did it. And I looked at it. And I said, well, it's shorter. That's better. Shorter is always better. And I said, but this is really a violation of everything I stand for, that if you really believe that truth is your friend, then why not have an adolescent and an adult see what the facts are about the science of attachment? And they can work it out then or not work it out, but at least they're informed. You know? And if it creates more tension, maybe the tension will motivate them to actually move towards security. So it's in the book, and we'll see how it goes. Um, you know, but it's completely in the book. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And you know, I understand it's going to create an invitation for deep, deep discussions. Then an adolescent can read this and say, hey, uh, I need to talk to you about how you were terrifying me, or whatever. You know? So OK. So let's, let's go for it. So anyway, we'll see. There's no book out there that does that. And maybe there's a reason. And maybe you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. So that's what attachment is. Now, attachment continues throughout our lifespan. But it transforms, right? We don't continue to depend on our parents. In childhood, we do, of course. But when you're an adolescent, what happens to this attachment component of the limbic functioning? When you're distressed, do you go to your parents or do you go to your peers? You go to your peers. So there's a natural evolution in terms of what changes in this remodeling brain of the limbic area of an adolescent to turn toward peers and not toward parents, and that's natural. Now, how does a parent feel about that? Yeah. Crappy, that's right. You feel rejected, you feel hurt, you go, oh my God, what did I do wrong, you know, all these things. Yeah. 
but it's a natural way unless you want your kid to be home when she's 50 or 60 years of age. You know, they got to move toward their peers, but it can hurt. So, you know, since this book is also written for parents, I say, I, you know, listen, I'm a parent. I understand that it hurts. It's painful. But you got to understand the frame of what's going on. Because if a parent feels rejected by a child's natural limbic remodeling that gets them to go to their peers or their parents, that's going to create a fight right there, right? So that's another issue that, that, that gets clarified by understanding the truth. Okay, so you can see these changes that are happening. Now let's go to the third area of the brain, the cortex. So if you bend your fingers over the top, this is the highest part of the brain. So it's called the neomammalian cortex, or neocortex for short, or just cerebral cortex. Those are all synonyms. The cerebral cortex is comprised of different lobes. And basically, the lobes are all with columns of neurons, the basic cell of the brain, that are about six layers thick. And the columns communicate with each other very closely. So they create, in the back of the brain here, maps of the outside world, the three-dimensional world. And if you have eyes, then your eyes put input to this part of the brain, and so you see the three-dimensional world. If you are blind and you're using your fingers to feel the outside world, your fingers will put input to this area of the brain. So you can make maps of the outside world with this part of the brain, the three-dimensional world. The side makes maps of sound. The top part makes different maps of the body and what the body touches and feels and the extent of the body. And the frontmost lobe makes maps of ideas and concepts and allows you to reason and think about the future. The future doesn't exist except in this frontal area of the brain. That's why, interestingly, in the mindfulness research world, this is just a, a, a side comment, you know, a number of mindfulness researchers say, well, the, the point of mindfulness is to not think about the future, so you want to shut off your frontal lobe. Um, which is actually now published by some of our leaders in the field of mindfulness research. They say the, the prefrontal cortex, especially the front most of the front, is the bad guy, and you want to shut it down. And I don't agree with that, so it's an interesting intellectual debate we're having now about that whole issue and how to interpret the science and stuff, so that's a, that's a kind of a side issue. For our purposes, though, this frontal part of the brain from your second to last knuckles forward is the part that's going to develop last. It develops into the 20s. And the whole purpose of remodeling that we're going to talk about now is to make this whole system work in a different kind of way that it did in childhood. So let me give you the overall view, and then we're going to go into these in, in specifics uh, soon. But let me, let me ask you a question. I have something called attention excess disorder. So I could sit here talking for eight hours without stopping. So you, you need to tell me your physiological needs. Do we need to take a little break now? Raise your hand if you need a break. Okay, so where's Sarah? I don't, I don't know. Uh, should we just take a break then? Because I don't want, if you need a break, let's do this. Let's take a five-minute break, but for those who really need it, let them go first like on an airplane. They're catching a plane. And let's come back in five minutes and start up again. Um, you know, it's going to be too noisy. Let's, let's just let everyone take a little break. Sweet anecdote that yes. happened yesterday. I'm working with a senior who is going blind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.